Today I'll be explaining what the Pennsylvania State Trooper was doing in my driveway last week with his lights on, alerting the neighbors that criminal activity was going on right under their noses. That means today's theme is law and order. Hi, I'm Chris Rodell. I've written stories and features for just about every major magazine or publication in America. This is the Use All the Crayons podcast, where I'll share those colorful stories with you. I saw one head peeking out the window, and it was just a quick peek, like if it had lingered for too long it might have drawn gunfire. A Pennsylvania State Trooper had pulled over a dilapidated vehicle with a shifty-looking motorist, and it was all going down in our driveway. That was convenient for me because it was my car and I was the suspect. Home sweet home. Frankly, I was delighted. He left the light extravaganza flashing, thus ensuring my family was crowded around the window to see if Daddy was going to get taken into custody right out there where all the nebby neighbors could gawk. I wonder what was going through their minds. What was my crime? Porn kingpin? Narcotics? Smart money was on me finally getting up the nerve to knock off a bank. In fact, he'd pulled me over for driving with expired tags. He was back in the cruiser doing whatever they do for those next five or so minutes. I was hoping he was discovering my new Use All the Crayons podcast. Finally, he returned and asked why I was ignoring so many regulations. I'm in a tough time right now, I said, and I need to prioritize. I don't need the car for much, so I just let it go. What he said next surprised me. He offered to help. Is there anything I can do for you? I was truly touched by his unexpected gesture. I thanked him and told him I anticipated better days were ahead. I told him I'd been waiting for a gusher of good news ever since I chucked it all to become a writer in 1992. He informed me that 1992 was the year he was born. Then it became like we were auditioning for one of those 90s buddy-buddy cop comedies, like Midnight Run, one of my favorites starring Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin. We had a couple more minutes of friendly chat, and he said, I'm going to write you up for these violations, and here's what I want you to do. Get them all taken care of, and then plead not guilty. He said that there'd be a hearing, and he'd recheck the car, and if all was in order, he'd withdraw the $292 in fines. He wished me good luck, and again asked if there was anything else he could do. It seemed like a real long shot, but I thought, what the hell? I asked if he'd come into the house and tell my family he was going to take me to jail. Now, I don't know whether it was a slow day or if he just needed to indulge a puckish sense of humor, but right away he said, I'll shake him down for bail money. His face glared with disdain. It was a look that mirrored the faces of my loved ones. Whatever was going to happen, I was to blame for interrupting their Saturday morning programs. I realized there was a scene rich in irony. I was simultaneously appearing to be the most and least wanted man in La Trobe, right there in my own home. The trooper growled. We've got some real problems here, ladies, and unless you three can come up with $10,000 bail in two minutes, you're not going to be seeing Daddy for about six months. Had the scenario been factual, I'm convinced they would have said, see ya, to me, and not even discuss the matter until the credits rolled. But the trooper and I cracked. We both enjoyed our little prank. My family, by some means of anti-Daddy osmosis, unanimously decided no, inviting an armed stranger, an authority figure, into our living room with threats to tear our family asunder was not funny. Well, they're wrong. It was very funny. What can I say? They don't much like Midnight Run, either. Amazing. They're the ones that don't like Midnight Run, and I'm the one they're going to arrest. I am Chief Richard Bosco of the City of Latrobe Police Department. Today I'd like to tell you a story about an unscrupulous masseuse. He worked in the city, but we had to arrest him for armed robbery. Let me ask you some questions now. Sure. Are there any advantages to being the chief of police in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? There is a very succinct advantage to being the chief of police in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. There is uh, an understanding of kindness that comes with being 
a part of the neighborhood. A Pittsburgh burglary suspect's daring escape attempt had me recollecting all the questionable adventures I've had on frozen bodies of water. Running from the police isn't among them. William McManus, 25, is alleged to have ripped off armfuls of scratch-off lottery tickets from a downtown convenience store. I say alleged because I remember being instructed in journalism school. It's the until proven guilty fair designation and because I don't want to disqualify myself from potential jury duty. Case details sound fascinating, and I'm in one of those periodic slumps where the $12 a day jury duty compensation would seem like a gaudy windfall. McManus has a history of petty thievery. Confronted by police with a coat full of stolen lottery tickets, he certainly considered the consequences if caught and convicted. It's a choice all criminals face when nearing apprehension. Surrender, fight, or flight. The moment was immortalized in the 1971 Dirty Harry movie when Detective Harry Callahan asked the suspect about his intentions as he lay bleeding on the sidewalk. I know what you're thinking, Callahan says. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth, in all this excitement, I kind of lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would probably blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? This, I think, should be a part of every suspect's Miranda rights. I'd like to think I had the question posed that way to McManus. He'd have had the pluck to respond, I've got about a hundred lottery tickets in my coat. Of course I feel lucky. Either way, McManus took off. But he didn't run to a getaway car or down some dark alley. He ran straight to the Allegheny River. Oh, the exhilaration he must have felt because the Allegheny River was frozen solid. I wonder if he felt like Princess Elsa does in Frozen when she builds the magical ice bridge across the chasm. He must have been congratulating himself on his genius. His midnight escape was not without risks. I know this because I once fell through a pond that looked frozen. I was playing golf. It was a warm early spring day. The fairways were clear, but the ponds were frozen or so it seemed. Knowing this, I cunningly tried to gain an advantage by skipping my ball off the ice on a dog lake par five. The ball came to rest in the middle of the pond. As the match was tight, I didn't want to lose a stroke, so I gingerly crept out on the ice and took a mighty whack. I made good contact, but the commotion caused my back leg to break through the ice up to my knee. I was very lucky. Had both legs broken through, I might have been soaked clear up to my waist and forced to miss post-round drinks. I learned that day it's a very shallow pond. I was so much younger then, more reckless. Just a stupid kid, really. I was 57. Probably the closest I ever came to truly dying was in 2000. I was doing a story about the ice fishing on Malox, Minnesota. It's a 207 square mile lake that every year freezes solid enough to sustain a population of ice fishermen big enough to qualify as the state's third largest city. There are roads, regulars, trash pickup, pizza delivery, you name it, all of it on a three foot bed of ice. The problem is vast parts of it are unsafe. The first thing I did was unwittingly drive my rent-a-car on one of those unsafe parts and begin doing donuts. I was having a great time until I spied a concerned citizen dashing out on the ice, waving his arms. He said two or three fools die every year doing exactly what I was doing. Those are my two best on-ice adventures. I'm sure the fleeing McManus thought he was going to have a dandy story. Maybe he thought once he'd made it safely across the river he was home free. Wrong. Because the Allegheny River is not an international border. And in another miscalculation, he forgot there are Pittsburgh police on both sides of every Pittsburgh River. In fact, if I'm reading the story right, the officers who tried to arrest him on the river's downtown side simply got into their cruiser, drove across one of the many bridges, and were waiting it for him as he scampered up the riverbank. Still, I don't believe the escape was in vain. 
A crafty attorney can certainly get the resisting arrest charge dismissed. After all, McManus and Away obeyed when the officers yelled, Freeze! We'd been freezing in Pittsburgh all month. Anytime police say they're combing a crime scene for evidence, reporters should be required to describe the situation as hairy. What do people say when they introduce yourself as the chief of police of Latrobe? I often, when I'm traveling, and I travel extensively, I often introduce myself to people as the chief of police of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. <laughs> and I ask them, well, I, I always predicate the question with, do you know who Mr. Rogers is? Yeah. And they, everybody, the worldwide majority of people know who Mr. Rogers is. Yeah. And I said, well, you have the absolute privilege of meeting the chief of police of Mr. <laughs> Rogers' neighborhood. I'm always appreciative when human curiosity overcomes professional reserve when I hand someone an offbeat story clip. That's what happened with Michael the other day at the FedEx store where I went to get an 18-year-old National Enquirer story laminated. I hadn't seen it for five years, hadn't read it for ten, and now I wanted it preserved forever. Why it didn't run was never fully explained. I think I remember my editor saying the publisher rejected it at the last minute saying it was too over the top, which struck me like an editor at Bon Appetit rejecting a story on the grounds that appeared too tasteful. I know I got paid $1,000 for it, and they'd send me a fax of the story with a run date stamped on the bottom. That's what I handed Michael, just one of those old flimsy black and white fax pages upon which so much commerce used to be conducted. Is that you, he asked. It is. He stopped. Wow. When did you do all this? I told him it was back in 1996, my heyday for doing most swashbuckling National Enquirer stories. I did more than 1,000 stories for them from 92 to 2000. It's not something many journalists would brag about. I brag about it all the time. It was great fun and paid well. The Enquirer in the 90s was what TMZ used to be. They had the scandal field all to themselves and broke the news that set the beat that had the whole country dancing. It was O.J. Simpson and Judge Ito, Woody and Sun Yi, Joey Buttafuoco and Amy Fisher, Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding, Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton, Bert and Lonnie, and on and on and on. The merry carousel never slowed. I didn't do much celebrity stuff, but was relied upon to do offbeat features. I did as many as four a week, and I really gave it hell. My antenna was always up for lively features that would make the demanding cut. That's how I ended up spending 72 hours handcuffed to vow. I remember reading a story about a Georgia girl who was so chronically truant the fed-up judge ordered her lashed to her negligent mother. It was a bit of Old Testament justice that drew national interest. It got even bigger when the mother went out of her mind. She had a nervous breakdown. She raved that being that close to someone so wild drove her crazy. I tried to divine a way that would make the story relatable to Inquirer readers, and when I thought of one, I pitched it to my editor. It went something like this. Inquirer reporter spends three days as a prisoner of love, handcuffed to his bride-to-be. We'd have 15-minute privacy bathroom breaks, but the rest of the time we'd be chained together. It was six months prior to our September wedding date. It got an instant green light. They were on fire for the story. We'd need to engage in all the scenarios typical couples do together and apart. The story begins, I've been a prisoner of love ever since I met my fiancé, but this time I really was in chains. Before we gave each other our hand in marriage, we decided to find out how well we truly bonded. If Valerie and I could stand being handcuffed to each other for three days straight, we figured we could overcome anything marriage had to dish out. Reading it today feels like watching a soap opera in which she and I are the stars. The three-day ordeal began Friday evening, which I like to spend in my favorite watering hole playing darts and smoking cigars with my pals. 
It was obvious from the start that Valerie was not going to enjoy this night. Do you have to smoke those stinky cigars, she whined? This is boring. Is this what you guys call having fun? Don't you ever talk about anything but sports? We went to her aerobics class the next morning. There's a picture of me looking bored being handcuffed to her, my arms rising in syncopation with the dance music. Then she took me to her beauty salon, which became the dominant picture. It's a shot of her sitting under a big hairdryer and me chained next to her reading a national magazine. Care to guess which one? As we were on the acquire expense account for the entire time, I took her to dinner at the Lamont on Mount Washington, Pittsburgh's finest restaurant. Oh, what a delightful stir we caused. A bright young couple handcuffed to one another, but the staff never missed a beat. When I nearly severed my jugular with a steak knife, the waiter stepped in and cut my food into little kitty bites like Mommy used to. The drama crescendos toward the end where my fair damsel cracks up from the stress of our endless togetherness. I'm sick of this, she shouted. I don't want this stupid experiment to ruin our love. Take these infernal cuffs off, I told her. Sure, baby, we're sick of each other, but we'll face much worse in our marriage. We've got to stick it out. I tugged on the cuffs, yanked her close to me, and kissed her. Our love is stronger than these steel handcuffs, I said. We can make it. This crisis is nearly over. Someday our daughters will find this and absolutely howl at the discovery. Michael read the whole thing and just roared with laughter. He asked if he could make a copy for himself before he laminated the facts. Be my guest. He made two. And what a lucky thing he did, too, because what neither of us knew at the time was that putting the fax paper into a hot laminating device will incinerate the fragile paper. It came out looking like a marshmallow that was left to toast too long in the campfire. It was a story I'd forgotten about for years, and now it seems unbelievably precious to me. It's just so sweet and funny. Sweet, funny, and prophetic. Because that's exactly what happened. What to do in the Laurel Highlands this weekend? Visit Ligonier and shop for books at 2nd Chapter Books, 139 East Main Street. Then take the books to the McCollin Resort for an unforgettable splurge. Thanks to our friends at Headspace Media and Latro for technical expertise, cheerful encouragement, and for always letting a Lone Ranger feel like he's part of the team. Thanks to Robindale Energy for their gracious and essential support. If you enjoy the podcast, we urge you to share, rate, and review. Be sure to tell all your friends and urge them to tell all their friends. The world really, really needs us right now, and that means we really, really need you.